Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. With admiration and respect for those protesting right now to promote the message, Black Lives Matter. Today, it's another packed show from New York Totally. As more leagues prepare for action, we ask our French fans cheesed off and whining about their league stopping. What's going on in the Bundesliga with a biggie this weekend as Bayer face Bayern? And we look back on Champions League 03-04, the year Porto and Monaco reached the final and Moo had his best run at Old Trafford. Plus, the intertotally grand finale, Daniel Story takes on Michael Cox. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. That's right, friends. As football continues to creep back around us in the Totally Show today, we've got Alvaro Romeo. Hello. Julian Laurence. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. And James Horncastle. Hello. Wow. Lovely to see your busy show uh, this week. More leagues getting back into action. Jules, by the way, with everybody else kind of picking up where they left off, but France having preemptively declared that that's it. How are people in France feeling about this? Not not really good, James, uh, for a few reasons. There's still some people in the country that think that it was the right call uh, to stop the season where they did at the end of April, uh, that health had to go first with the priority and that football comes way, way below that. So it was the right call. But more and more frustration, I think, growing. Uh, more and more... A lack of understanding, especially that now the message from the government has changed. First, it was you cannot play football until September because it's not safe. And now it's, well, by the end of July, you could have games, maybe with fans in the stadium as well now. So we went from you can't play at all between April and September to now you can play in July again if you want to. And you could probably even have fans in the stadiums. And the clubs are saying, like, hang on, first we stopped the season because you said no football until September. And a month later, you're saying, actually, even July could be fine with fans in the stadium. Uh, and there's more and more stories emerging as well. The latest one being that the decision was actually taken by Emmanuel Macron to stop the season. Emmanuel Macron being a, a huge Marseille fan. And Emmanuel Macron actually speaking to the Marseille chairman, uh, Jacques Henriero, before he took the decision. And obviously, what would Marseille say when they're second in the table and going back for the first time in six years to the Champions League? Would they say, let's continue the season um, and have the risk of maybe not finishing in the top three and not qualifying for Champions League? Or should we stop now and then we're sure to be in the Champions League next season? And it seems that Macron was very happy to stop the season as Marseille were second and still qualified and qualifying for the Champions League next season. Did you read that in Le Parisien? Is that is, is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is in Le Parisien, but it, it, it's actually the truth. I think now it makes more sense if you think about it of why Macron tried to get every other league to agree to stop their season as well. Because if every if everybody had done like him, no one would have looked on why or the reason why the season stopped everywhere. But now that we're the only one, people are starting asking a lot of questions. And then things, like we said, are starting to come out that he decided to do it because maybe his club 
uh, it was much better for his club to finish his season then when they were second in table and already in the Champions League next season. Wow, Jules. Later on, we'll get your theories on 5G as well. But in the meantime, <laughs> uh, Germany getting, pleasure. <laughs> getting some midweek games uh, since our last show on Monday, actually, Leipzig moved back into the top four. Frankfurt Wednesday night dealt Bremen's survival hopes a blow. Uh, and also uh, the authorities gave their backing and said there'll be no disciplinary action for any players taking their shirts off to uh, continue the George Floyd uh, protests. In Portugal, the Liga Nosh returned Wednesday night. Jules, you were watching this. Yeah, big shock. Famalicão beating Porto 2-1, which... Gives Benfica, who played tonight on Thursday night against Tondela at home, the opportunity to go ahead of Porto in the table now and go top. Right. Porto had only just taken the lead before the league was suspended and now they could, could blow it again. Just a thought, though. Wouldn't it be great if Mu took over Family Cow? You know, because... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks for that, Jules. Yeah, it could be good. It could be good. Just to finish with Porto, they could have... You know, they they. They should have won that game. They had big chances. They could not score. Uh, and, and it's a game that, in, in different circumstances, they probably would have won. But as you said, you know, he, he throws a, a laugh line to Benfica. Certainly does. In Austria, they got back underway this week. And there's been a change of lead there as well. In fact, there had been a change of lead, even without the teams playing. Lewis Wilkinson asking, does anybody know why Salzburg are now top of the Austrian Bundesliga when Lask went into the mid-season break ahead? Well, many thanks to the plethora of uh, listeners who replied. Uh, Rob Wright was the first, pointing out that uh, Lask actually got deducted six points for breaching social distancing rules in training. Basically, the other 11 teams in the Austrian Bundesliga were sent a video of uh, Lask having prohibited close contact training and uh, as a result a complaint was made. Lask have also complained saying that men broke into their training ground to install the cameras but the Austrian Bundesliga uh, weren't too bothered about that and deducted six points from them which saw uh, Red Bull Salzburg move into the lead in the division and they increased that lead this week beating Rapid Vienna 2-0 while Lask lost 2-1 to TSV Prolacto Hartberg. That's a team. It was a pretty good week then for RB Salzburg, who also, by the way, won the Austrian Cup last weekend. I don't know if, if you saw that. And they obviously had to lift the cup in a very social distancing way. So the captain, uh, Ulmer, had to had the cup and then every player was two metres apart from each other on a sort of big banner on the pitch. And they had to... I, I guess they were happy, but did he have to, to wipe the cup down after every 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 trophy <laughs> trophy left? Was that? I don't think so, but they should have done. Yeah, it was not very. Um, mm. You know, they were not being very careful there. Yeah, it was it was the weirdest, like cup lifting celebration like you would see. Okay, next up, La Liga on the eleventh of June, a week today, due to get back into action. The next day, the twelfth, Turkey's Super League. A couple of days after that, Sweden's Old Svenskan. And then, of course, the Premier League due to commence again on the 17th of June with Syria and the Championship three days later on the 20th. Championship, one or two question marks there. Another nine positives at six different clubs, uh, Championship clubs in this week's testing, which suggests that between that and the fact that they've reduced the amount of build-up to just two weeks of contact training, that there might be one or two problems. As for Syria, James, I see they're hoping to have fans in for their games. Yeah, it's something that the president of the Italian Football Federation keeps pushing for, um, not content with the government already kind of approving 
um, their plan to come back. He seems to still keep just pushing things that a little bit further and further. I think we will see football return to Italy um, as early as June 12th. Um, that's when um, they want to play uh, the first of the Coppa Italia semi-final second legs um, and give Inter a bit more time ahead of a, a three-game week, um, which I think both Inter and Milan think that's a very kind of fast start um, for teams that have had three months with no football at all. Um, but this idea to, to reopen Stadia um, it is in line with um, yeah, an improving situation in Italy and kind of reflects the, the fact that up and down the country there are grounds that are too big, really, <laughs> which have lots of space in them. Um, and given that uh, they don't sell out um, these grounds all the time anyway, um, they don't see why not. Uh, yeah, they can open grounds to maybe a 25% capacity um, to allow for social distancing. So there are at least a fan presence, particularly at the games towards the end of the season where you've got Juventus-Lazio, for example, four games from the end, which looks like it could be a title decider. You've got games between Inter and Roma. Um, and Napoli have got some big games towards the end. So I think that's very much the kind of motivation of starting this conversation now, if you like. And following up on what James is saying, uh, Las Palmas president, Las Palmas place in the second division, has requested the Spanish government and the regional government of uh, Gran Canaria to be able to open the ground to supporters, maybe not um, for a full capacity ground, but uh, at least to have uh, one third of the, of the stands uh, full with, um, with supporters, because Gran Canaria can do it actually. Spain um, has different phases of de-escalation depending on the regions really, and Gran Canaria hasn't been that affected by the coronavirus, and uh, let's see if the government allows that. It looks like it won't, uh, because there is an unfairness in all that, because if Las Palmas can play with the uh, supporters, but the rest of the teams can't, uh, obviously there is an inequality in there, because uh, for obvious reasons. So let's see how that pans out, but uh, it's a reflection as well of uh, how finally uh, the coronavirus uh, outbreak is in remission in Spain too. One man who probably won't be welcome at any Spanish stadiums is Giampiero Gasparini, though, Alvaro, eh? After the extraordinary revelations that he was sick with coronavirus and continued. He felt sick during the first leg of uh, Atalanta's clash with uh, Valencia and then went to the game at the Mastaya, even though he was aware that he was uh, showing symptoms. Yeah, and I think that uh, Valencia was uh, one of the first clubs that... uh, got uh, a massive coronavirus outbreak. I mean, six or seven players of the squad uh, got the coronavirus too. And uh, obviously, also that game uh, played in uh, San Siro between uh, Atalanta and Valencia has been called like a biological bomb too, for obvious reasons. I mean, uh, but at the same time, the awareness at the end of February, at the beginning of March, of how bad the coronavirus was, uh, wasn't the same. So I don't think that actually Gasperini can be that blamed uh, this time. It's quite curious that Gasparini would uh, be so forthright in uh, revealing his symptoms and how he felt um, going into that game, uh, knowing what we know now and how sensitive uh, everyone is to it. There was a report in one of the Spanish papers about Valencia even going to UEFA um, about this to, to see if if some action could be taken um, for potentially compromising the kind of health and safety uh, not only of their players of their, uh, but of their staff um, as well. Um, you know, Gasparini, who, you know, I think throughout that interview, his intentions were good in, in, in suppose that yeah, he really has taken on the responsibility and wants his team to take on the responsibility of helping 
uh, to lift Bergamo, which is, has been one of the kind of hardest hit places in that one of the hardest hit regions, uh, not only in Italy, but in the world with coronavirus. But um, yeah, I think perhaps there will be some regret on his part for, <laughs> for coming forward in the manner that he did. And hopefully for having gone to a game with full-blown COVID-19. But now, very, very shortly, we're going to be getting the final underway of the Intertotally Cup. Will Story cover himself in glory? Will Cox knock us out of our socks? We'll be finding out after this. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Well then, as happy fans take their seats and the last strains of our corporate-friendly warm-up entertainment die away, thanks, Pitbull, it's time for the Intertotally Cup Final. It's been a journey. Way back in March it was that we lined up our TFS crew for the ultimate test of pundit knowledge. Now, two remain. Let's meet them. Up first. He's the pre-tournament favourite who took his time to get going, but now that he's up and running, he cannot be bargained with. He cannot be reasoned with. He doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and he absolutely will not stop. He is Michael Cox. Yes, you are, aren't you, Michael? Welcome back to the quiz. Thank you very much. And yeah, a fitting introduction, I think. Uh, Took a while to get going, but hopefully got into my stride in the semi-final. Right, 10 out of 10 in the semi-finals. That's pretty scary stuff. But a slightly tweaked formula here in the Intertotally final, which will make it more of a test than ever. Let's meet the man you're up against. And his opponent. He's gone at it hammer and tongs with Rafa Honigstein, Julian Laurent and Alvaro Romeo and left everything on the pitch. And when we say everything, we mean everything. Uh, he may not be backing himself, but you listeners certainly should. He is Daniel the Self-Doubter Story. Hi, Daniel. Hi, James. What's that on your sweater, Daniel? Is that mom's spaghetti? <laughs> I am... Um... <laughs> Yeah, on the surface I look calm and ready, but no. No? It's not too late for a little trash talking, if you want to get into Michael's mind a little bit? I don't think that's my style, I'm afraid. All right, then. Well, the rules, I mentioned a slight difference this time around. There are going to be three rounds, one on the Champions League, one on the World Cup, and then general knowledge with a penalty shootout if it's all square. Four. All right, well, first to go... In round one, answering questions on the Champions League 1992 to the present is Daniel Story. Daniel, question one. Three Premier League clubs have appeared in one and only one Champions League season, not including qualifiers. Can you name two of these three clubs? Uh, Blackburn. Um, uh, Leicester. Is correct, the other side being Leeds United. Question two. Who scored Marseille's winner in the 1993 final against Milan? Uh, Basil Bolly. Is correct. Question three. Three teams have won the Champions League who had never won the European Cup. Can you name two of them? Um, uh, going to look. Porto. Um... 
Dortmund? Porto is incorrect. Dortmund is correct, but Marseille and Chelsea are the other two Champions League winners who'd never previously won the European Cup. Mm-hmm. Question four. Which player lost in the Champions League final and the European Championships final in the same year, 2016? So that's Portugal against... Paul Pogba? It's Antoine Griezmann. Oh. Uh, 16, sorry. Yeah. Idiot. Question five. Four managers have won the Champions League with two different clubs. But who is the only man to win it with two different clubs from the same country? Um, oh, uh, Otmar Hitzfeld. Is no. correct. Borussia oh. Dortmund, 1997. And Bayern Munich, 2001. Well, at the end of that, Daniel, you've scored three out of five. How do you feel? Yeah, a couple of sloppy, nervous mistakes, but to be expected on this stage, I think. Here comes Michael Cox. Michael, your questions on Champions League 1992 to the present begin thus. Question one. Two teams have won Champions League finals in their own countries. Which two are they? Um, First time we've heard noises from Michael in the quiz. That's the level of tension. <laughs> Struggling to think of either of them here. Uh, two teams have won Champions League finals in their own countries. Which two teams are they? Ooh, I'm going to be taking a fairly wild guess here, I think. Um, Real Madrid it's... and... I don't think that one's right. Real Madrid yeah. and Real Madrid Juventus. is wrong. Yeah, it worked out last time statistically, but no. The two teams were Juventus, who won it in Rome in 1996, and Borussia Dortmund, who won it in 97 in Munich. Wow. Question two. Mm. Who scored Ajax's goal against Juventus in the 1996 final? Um... I'm going to go for Lippmannen. It was Lippmannen. You're on the board. Question three. In Champions League finals, what links Andrei Shevchenko, Vladimir Jugovic, Didier Drogba and Cristiano Ronaldo? I think they have all scored the winning penalty in a shootout in a final. That is correct. Question four. Three players have won the Champions League final with two different clubs in consecutive years. Can you name two of them? So that's winning the Champions League final with different clubs in consecutive years. Three players have done it. We need two. I think Marcel Desailly did it. And I think Paulo Sosa did it. That's correct. Paulo Sosa with Juve in 96 and Dortmund in 97. Desailly with Marseille in 93 and then the following season with Milan, and Samuel Eto'o, the other name, Barcelona in 2009 and Inter the following campaign. Question five then, and this to take the lead. Who is the only team to win the Europa League or UEFA Cup and then the Champions League in consecutive years? Uh, Porto. Is correct. So, Michael, at the end of that round, you scored four out of five and have a one-point lead heading into the World Cup round. Were you feeling the tension a little bit more than before? Uh, a little bit. I, I had a complete blank on the first question. Um, 
and yeah, had I, had I got Lippmann wrong, I think I would have been uh, struggling. It's funny, it's almost like uh, golf, you know, if you miss one putt, then when it comes to the next one, you're just all over the place. So uh, right. yeah, please I got back on track. Yeah, at least 50% of this game is in the mind, I think. Anyway, we'll be back for round two with the slenderest of leads for Michael Cox very shortly. So that's pretty tight there. Michael Cox, one point in the lead. As we move on on the total lead to this week's retro section, as we look back on Champions League Chapter 14. You watching the Paddy Power golf shootout on Friday? Yeah, it's not like I'm sport for choice. What is it? Well, according to this script, it's the UK's first golf tournament since lockdown. Oh, nice. Fleetwood playing? Yeah, and Bjorn. Plus beef. Beef! Class. Anyone else? Uh, Harry Kane, Freddie Flintoff, Jamie Redknapp and Peter Crouch. Uh, you did say golf, right? The Paddy Power Golf Shootout. With celebrity amateurs taking part, we're bound to have more wayward drives than Dominic Cummings. Follow the action and watch on Paddy Power's YouTube channel. All day on Friday. Paddy Power. 18plusbegumbleaware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Champions League Chapter 14. One of the competition's most open seasons ever. It had crazy games, colossal comebacks and two outsiders, Monaco and Porto, in the final. Plus, the rise of a brash young manager who would take football by storm. I'm European champion. Actually, I meant Didier Deschamps, but... Okay. Anyway, it was a particularly open and entertaining season, this one, wasn't it? Well, I think this entire season, uh, James, is a trap season um, in that all of the big teams, the favourites, fall into it um, and fall out of uh, the biggest competitions in Europe. Not only the Champions League, but also the European Championship. Because remember, uh, 2004, Greece also um, shocked everyone um, in beating, uh, what, Portugal on home soil. Um, and this was very much the uh, the appetizer um, for that, with you know clubs like uh, Real Madrid, uh, Milan, uh, Manchester United um, going out as early as the quarterfinals, and all of a sudden um, teams with aside from Porto not really having a great tradition or history in this competition. I think Porto were only the only side left in it who had won it before as we reached the semi-finals, made it uh, a season unlike uh, no other and one we certainly haven't seen since either. Well, early signs were there of this season's all-round oddness. In the group stages, November, Monaco, for example, hosting Group C leaders Deportivo. Deportivo, who'd barely conceded a goal so far. Monaco facing this game without their star striker, Fernando Morientes, but Monaco doing Deportivo 8-3. 8-3! Yes, I remember that game very well. I think that uh, it encapsulates a little bit what Deportivo was uh, was about. I mean, they they weren't very consistent that season. Uh, they were capable of producing uh, some of the best uh, things, like uh, beating Milan uh, 4-0, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, and also suffering a heavy defeat like that. Uh, that was the, the year, I would say, when the big Deportivo project started uh, falling down a little bit. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, it was an 8-3 for Monaco, but still Deportivo managed to qualify. And I remember Diego Tristan scoring a beautiful goal in uh, in the Louis II uh, stadium as well. So I remember the game for that too. Jules, meanwhile, Monaco in the Champions League, but they had a, had a fair chance of actually being in the second division this season. 
You're right, James. The the summer oh three, uh, they had run out of money. It was really a case of they could go bust completely. It was a tough time for the club. Although they finished second that season in Ligue 1, that's why they're in the Champions League in in oh three or four. Deschamps was a very young manager at the time, and the players decided to to stick together, to to stay together. There was it was a mix of young French exciting players like Rotten, like Julie, like Skilacci, Givet. Uh, Rodriguez, you know, all of those and some more experienced players as well, like Plazil, or, you know, foreign players like Plazil, Dado Perso, who we will talk later about, Nonda as well was there, Fernando Morientes was on loan from Real Madrid, arrives on loan there, but they got rid of the very expensive players, Panucci, Gallardo, Marco Simone as well, all left the club. And it was a really new era for, for Deschamps with, with this bunch of players. And, and really, Deschamps says that, that that decision of sticking together, so having that sort of fighting spirit, team spirit, or we, we will save the club all together. And the one who stays are really the one who loves the club, really like brought some unity to the squad, to the, to the team and to the club. And Deschamps said that from the beginning, he really felt that this could be a special season for them. Roten, il est passé. Est-ce qu'on va égaler le score du PSG Rosenborg? Oui! Eh oui! Le voilà, le quadruplé, comme Thierry le rappelait tout à l'heure. There he was in his leather coat, watching us Dado Perso. Knocked in four goals against Deportivo. It was was an extraordinary performance, that Jules. It was incredible on his 29th birthday as well. You know, he really he thought there would be a, a special night. He was really starting because Morientes was the was the key striker, obviously, and, and Morientes was out injured for that game. So he was he was Perso's chance. Really, never a goal scorer. Always more of a like um, a fringe player. Quite useful because he was strong, tall, you know, and and he could hold the ball up well. But never a finisher, really, in that way. But on that night, helping with a atrocious defending by Deportivo La Coruña defence and Jose Molina in goal, who, by the way, was taken off at halftime. It was that bad after conceded five. But Perso was very efficient, like the rest of the Monaco side. And really, it's one night that one they will never forget. But also, again, going to that sort of uh, team spirit uh, idea that Deschamps had at the beginning of the season, that game as well showed the squad and Deschamps that they could do something special. Maybe Molina would have played better uh, as a left winger in that game. How so, Alvaro? I have to, I have to explain this. Because uh, Molina, uh, he, he made his debut for the Spanish national team playing as a left winger, not as a goalkeeper. Did he? He did, wow. with Javier Clemente. Amazing. Good Lord. And what made him switch then to no, between no, no. the posts? Uh, Molina was a goalkeeper at the time. Molina was a right. goalkeeper when he played his first game with the Spanish national team as a left winger. But I think that the manager ran out of options and uh, he needed to do one change. And Molina was the only player available. And uh, his debut with the Spanish national team was a left winger. Was playing but with what left. shirt? With, with a goalkeeper's shirt? No, no, no. With the Spanish national team shirt. With the player shirt. With the field but player shirt. He was on the bench with a goalkeeper shirt, no? Yes, but he ended up playing as a... As a player, because there were no options there. It's one of the most uh, bizarre things. Was Clemente trolling the opposition? (laughs) I don't remember exactly the specifics, but uh, Molina uh, made his debut with the Spanish national team as a left winger, which is really bizarre, considering that he was capped as a goalkeeper for the Spanish national team. De pronto a ver el mar y tú envía una postal. Ya sabía que aquel día era el final. Well, Fran Pereira there with a big hit in Spain at the time. Uno más uno son siete. 
which will sound A, familiar uh, to the Lightning Seeds, and B, uh, it was still one short of what Monaco managed in that game, but both they and Deportivo would qualify for the last 16. In fact, all four of the Spanish teams would. Deportivo, Real Madrid, Real Sociedad with Xavi Alonso, and Celta Vigo, remarkably enough. Also going through, Juventus and Milan, the previous season's finalists. Lyon, Bayern Munich, and Man United, Chelsea, and the Premier League's Invincibles, Arsenal, who themselves had had a pretty interesting time of it in the group stage, picking up only one point from their first three games, but turning it around with a run of three straight victories, including one memorable night in Milan. Henri steps inside, Pires is there. Henri will have to do it alone. Oh! Yeah, at San Siro against uh, Inter, James. Um, I think this is one of the the high points, if you like, of uh, Arsene Wenger's time at, uh, at Arsenal. Um, one of the the great European nights, and so great that it actually kind of eclipsed what had happened to them uh, when Inter went to Highbury, um, which you know a lot of people forget about when uh, they uh, they lost three um, nil um, the home side, the Gunners, with Julio Cruz, the gardener. Andy van der Meijer, um, who I think used to keep zoo animals, um, and Oberfemi Martins, um, all scoring. And Inter had actually yeah, sort of started that group uh, relatively well. Um, and then just as Arsenal's group stage turned around, theirs fell apart and they, they lost 5-1 at home, which I think must go down as one of the, uh, the biggest, if not the biggest, European home defeat for the Nerazzurri at the Miazza. Um, and just some of the some of the play uh, from Arsenal that night was just uh, sparkling. And James James is right. The way they played that night, and especially Thierry Henry with two goals and two assists. The second one, especially where he really made fun of Javier Zanetti, and we all love Javier Zanetti, and we're all big fans. But he did him really bad on that second goal, and he was just unplayable that night. And that that game, followed by the win against Lokomotiv Moscow at Highbury, two uh, 0 two weeks later or three weeks later seal the place of Arsenal in, in the last 16, in a season, obviously, of the invincible season. And they were doing so well in the league and, and, and yet so badly in Europe before that intergame, pretty much. There were some performances of Thierry Henry that season in the 2003-2004 that uh, should have won, won in the Ballon d'Or, probably. Uh, it was Andrei Shevchenko who won it at the end, but I think that uh, Thierry Henry has never been closer to that. Into the last 16, the Gunners went where they saw off Celta Vigo, Monaco did for Lokomotiv Moscow, and Deportivo defeated Juventus, the key clash in this round, coming meanwhile at Old Trafford, where the Manchester crowd were getting their first taste of Jose Mourinho. Man United were reigning Premier League champions and had flown through the group stage. Porto were reigning UEFA Cup champions. The first leg had gone their way, 2-1 at the Dragao. Now, could they hang on to that lead against United? on a night when a Russian linesman didn't help the English game. Lá vai McCarthy, o árbitro ainda ajeita a posição da barreira. A distância regulamentar. McCarthy vai partir para a bola. A rematar. E a defesa do golo. Olha o golo. Yeah, 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 yeah. É gol. É o delírio. É o delírio. Marca Costinha. It's worth noting that uh, Paul Scholes scored a goal and he was not offside and that goal was cancelled and that would have changed the story. And 
Then Ronaldo was on the bench that game, and when he came on, uh, he got uh, a nasty challenge, I would say, and he couldn't keep on playing. So I don't know if having Ronaldo uh, would have changed the game, probably yes, for Manchester United, because that Ronaldo was already capable of producing amazing things. And uh, yeah, that goal cancelled to Paul Scholes, and then what happened in the semi-final with Andrade and Deco uh, tells you that Jose Mourinho should... Uh, probably think twice before uh, accusing the, the refs of giving Champions League to Barcelona and things like this, because he seems to have a very selective memory. Ha, I see. Interestingly, when Cristiano Ronaldo comes on in this game, he's wearing the exact same haircut that he's now sporting in lockdown. But you're right, the disallowed goal for Paul Scholes, which surely would have changed the course of this Champions League, is the subject of a lot of frustration for United fans. And I think a lot of observers of that game, loads of listeners writing in about it, and talking about what would have happened. Uh, equally, you could ask, what if Tim Howard had actually tipped that Benny McCarthy free kick in the last minute round the post instead of basically just palming it straight back to him? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Porto's uh, tournament so far as well, they'd only taken one point from their first two games. They were behind against uh, Didier Drogba's Marseille and then came back to win that 3-2. They finished runners-up in that group, which is why they got... United in the, the round of 16, they'd lost to Real Madrid at home um, as well. Um, but you know, I think uh, this game and the unscripted kind of nature of it reminds us of why you know, everyone is pushing so hard against uh, seasons to be decided by algorithms um, at the moment or uh, points per game. Because you know, in that case, I'm sure United would have gone through and instead you have a refereeing or a linesman making a mistake and then you have the drama of uh, that 90th minute, that stoppage time uh, goal from Costinha, which sent Porto through and sent Mourinho running uh, up the sideline to go and celebrate his players, um, which I think uh, even having got a flavour of who Mourinho is and what he's like from the, the UEFA Cup final the season before, this felt like he was really announcing himself on a stage which would soon become his own, um, English football and, and, and the Premier League. And already then in the kind of pre-match press conferences of, of these games uh, and afterwards, it was you know, giving the kind of sound bites that you know, would become certainly part of football for the next, for the next what, uh, 15 years. FPL Doctor mentions one, uh, Jose after beating United, you'll be really sad if your team gets as clearly dominated as that by an opponent <laughs> who has been built on maybe 10% of the budget. Can we take a second, says FPL Doctor, to appreciate the irony of these words? Anyway, there you go. Well, so this Porto triumph, which so nearly didn't happen because of that night at Old Trafford, but into the quarterfinals they went. And what drama there was awaiting here. Sean Saunders says, was this the best set of quarterfinals ever in the Champions League? You had Deportivo's amazing comeback against Milan. You had the 5-5 Monaco-Real Madrid game, plus a very tasty London derby. Yeah, loads to unpack in the quarterfinals. Jules, where do you want to start? Monaco? Yeah, let's start with Monaco. It was uh, They were well beaten at the Bernabeu by this Galacticos-Real Madrid uh, with Zinedine Zidane playing so well. 4-2, you think it's going to be really hard, even at the Stalwider, seeing the lack of atmosphere usually at that stadium. Uh, the fact that this is a very inexperienced Monaco side as well. For all the players that we mentioned earlier on the show, this is they've never been to those kind of games. They've never played in those kind of games before. And it looked like a huge task. I really, back home, no one really believed that Monaco could do it. 
And yet, it's an extraordinary game, really. If you think about it, there's this story, famous story in France that Zinedine Zidane at halftime, when he's walking back towards the dressing room, tells Ludovic Julie, who at that time, you know, is, is with him in the national team, says like, we, we, we can't run anymore. We're so tired. And Why was their fridge broken? No, it wasn't. I think they just, it, it was a very open first half and they had run a lot. And I think they were aging Galacticos, if you remember. Right. And, and I just think that the intensity that Monaco played at the time, which is true. I mean, it was a very different Didier Deschamps as a manager that time than, than it is now. Far less pragmatic, less conservative. It was a very exciting style of football for Monaco. They were running a lot. They had attacking fullbacks with Patrice Evra on the left, for example, and that kind of stuff. And I think Real Madrid in that first half really struggled to keep with the pace of the game. And Deschamps and, and Zidane, sorry, was always crossed with Julie because Julie made that public at the end of the game. And, and Julie said, we knew at halftime that Real Madrid didn't have the legs anymore in the second half. And that's where they made the difference, Monaco, in the second half, by being younger, fitter, run more and, and being far more effective. And we have to say, James, that uh, Real Madrid had a squad that didn't make any sense that season. And Jules is totally right. I mean, they collapsed physically. And uh, there is a, a name that comes to everyone's mind, I think, Claude Makelele, that summer. Real Madrid decided to sell Claude Makelele and they transfer in David Beckham. And they fit in David Beckham in the Makelele role. It was a very strange fit in Real Madrid. And it became a plethora of stars. In 2003, Real Madrid was a team that still made some sense because Makelele was the one who was giving some balance to all, all the structure. But in 2004, Real Madrid was not that team. And I just want to remind everybody who Real Madrid centre-backs were against Monaco that day. They were Ivan Elguera and Álvaro Mejía. Well, Ivan Elguera was an average centre-back, uh, good if he played with Fernando Hierro, but Fernando Hierro left Real Madrid that summer 2003 as well. So Elguera was the man to lead the defence during the whole season, and he was clearly not that leader. And the other defender was Álvaro Mejía, a defender from the academy that actually was an average uh, at best, defender in La Liga. So that day that Real Madrid collapsed, it wasn't a real surprise because in the spring of 2004, they ended up losing the Spanish Cup final against Zaragoza. They lost against Monaco really badly and they ended up losing the last five games of La Liga. And uh, yeah, that's the way they finished the season. Carlos Queiroz uh, had to be sacked uh, literally the minute after La Liga was finished. Well, through Monaco went Courtesy of goals from Morientes in both legs, of course, on loan from Real Madrid. Porto went through, beating Leon. Chelsea overcame the Invincibles after a 1-1 draw at Stamford Bridge. It was then 1-1 at Highbury when Wayne Bridge popped up. And Brendan Dolan says, has Arsenal ever been the same, truly, since this goal from Wayne Bridge? Wayne Bridge, Ida good Jonsson. It's Bridge! It's in! It's Chelsea's night! It's Wayne Bridge! With just three minutes left to play. It's a good question. Uh, it's certainly... I mean, this is, this is a season where they're so good that they could easily have won the treble. Uh, they obviously will lose to United in the FA Cup as well. Uh, losing to Chelsea, I think, really hurt them in that quarterfinals because they were so dominant in the first leg and they played so well in that game. They played so well. I remember I was a Highbury in that second leg uh, that night and they, they played so well for most of the game. And then it felt like the thought of qualifying stopped them playing and they dropped deeper and deeper and deeper in that game and Chelsea on the other hand got more energy they were going forward they're really starting to believe that they could score that second goal that would send them through and it's exactly what happened and I think 
uh, Lampard scored in the 51st minute, so straight after halftime. But up to up to the first half, when Reyes scored for Arsenal, Arsenal are so in control. And then straight after the break, a mistake from Lehmann in goal on the Makarele shot. Lampard scores, and then it's a completely different game. And the dynamic has turned completely, and Chelsea are on top. And Arsenal, like I said, dropped deeper and deeper and deeper. And then 87th minute, there's that lovely, it's a lovely goal by Wenbridge, the 1-2 with Gudjonsson. But it's a game that Arsenal really should have never lost. And I think, yeah, it's true. Maybe after that, there was never the same. Vieira would leave uh, a year later in, in 05. Then Henri as well, obviously. There would be the Champions League final. They lost in 06. But the quality of football as well was just never the same after that season. Chelsea going through with Claudio Ranieri, their manager. Meanwhile, there was still one semi-final place to be decided between Deportivo La Coruña and Milan. Deportivo had already knocked out the previous season's beaten finalist Juve in the last 16. But now they came up against the reigning European champions and they were handed a footballing lesson at San Siro. 4-1 Milan winning, making the return leg a formality. Right. Fran. Bien para Fran. Fran. El cuarto. El cuarto para el Deportivo. Lo ha marcado Fran. Tocó un defensor. No, it didn't quite go like that, um, and we we bore witness to you know one of the all-time great uh, comebacks um, from from Deportivo. Um, yeah, all the more uh, amazing given what we've we've already spoken about, and this was a foreshadowing, if you like, of of, of what would later happen in two thousand and five. The kind of blackout Milan suffered against Liverpool uh, in Istanbul. This was their kind of uh, their blind spot where things almost felt like they were coming too easy for them um, and they would sometimes relax a little bit and allow teams into games and the games would get away from them uh, very quickly, even with that great defence um, that they had. But looking back, actually, at, at how Milan had fared during the group stages, I think you know what's surprising is, yeah, Alvaro mentioned Celta Vigo. Celta beat them at San Siro and Bruges also beat Milan at San Siro. Um, that that season, Milan still topped their group. Um, they were still, uh, you know, one of the most talented sides that we've ever seen assembled for this competition, um, and yet uh, would go out in such spectacular fashion that, you know, as with uh, as with what happened after uh, Istanbul, it was only uh, Ancelotti's kind of pedigree in this competition, which had began the season before, that kind of kept him in the job. Pirlo wrote in his, uh, on his autobiography that uh, for the first and only time in his life, he wondered if uh, people he shared a pitch with uh, might have been on something, referring to Deportivo de la Coruña players, hinting perhaps that they had uh, some performance-enhancing substance in their body that made them uh, so quick and so capable of running so much. But I, I read also an interview uh, to Cap de Villa, uh, Deportivo de la Coruña left back that day, and uh, he said that basically Milan players were walking that day, that they weren't running enough. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there are two versions of the story, but uh, Andrea Pirlo's one in his autobiography is uh, quite a strong, it's quite a strong mm. statement. Well, for a long time, it was the biggest comeback in Champions League history and remains the biggest one not involving a team called Paris Saint-Germain that we've ever seen. Deportivo's run was also to end in the following round when they got done by Porto. Semi-finals, as he mentioned, probably the most unlikely semi-final lineup the competition's ever seen. Monaco and Chelsea, Deportivo taking on Porto, who were the only previous European Cup winners in the quartet. Only the one goal in the two legs between those two sides. Meanwhile, in the other semi-final, there were goals galore as Monaco took on Chelsea. And this is where 
in popular understanding, it all goes wrong for Claudio Ranieri. What happens? Again, this is a game where everybody's watching, obviously. So you would see it, it was built up, I remember, as, as, a, as a battle between the two coaches as well. Deschamps, as we said, really young. He was 34, I think, at the time. Ranieri, far more experienced. Two managers from the Italian school, obviously, because Deschamps, despite we said before, was not as conservative maybe as now, but he was still, you know, he had had all those years in Italy at Juventus. And it's, this is a game that I think even Deschamps himself, more, more than being so close to the final and etc. But Deschamps really thought, OK, I'm going to, this is where I can prove myself against a manager like Ranieri. And, and this first game, I think, was we will forever stay for the nightmare that Claudio Ranieri has. One, one at halftime. Uh, with also Zikos then sent off for Monaco, the uh, the Greek midfielder straight after the break. Chelsea very much in control. It's 1-1, you 11 against 10. And then Ranieri, uh, just all the changes that he made didn't make much sense, to be fair. And then Monaco somehow managed to come back in the game and then score two late goals. Uh, one by Shamini Nonda, who would come back from injury, one by Morientes as well. To, to win that game 3-1 and, and pretty much not didn't put the tie to bed but then Chelsea would face quite a tough task uh, back at the bridge the following week Well they were 2-0 up at the bridge and set to go through again but the Monagas fought back uh, Morientes with the second Looking back was Ranieri ditched too quickly as the tinker man Paul asks any chance for a bit of love for Ranieri's iteration of Chelsea they've reached the semi-final and does the panel think that Ranieri could have neared Jose's level of success had he been given the chance? Mm, I would say no I think Mourinho's uh, Chelsea was a very special club and uh, Probably only Jose Mourinho could have assembled uh, such a good team. But anyway, Ranieri ended up having maybe the last laugh, I don't know how to call it, but he won the title with Leicester. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. I think as we see uh, whenever a takeover happens, um, owners often want their own manager. Claudio Ranieri was, was handed over from Ken Bates to Roman Abramovich. Um, and I think it was hard to resist considering the ambition Abramovich had and the money he was spending to not appoint Mourinho on the back of what Mourinho had just done over two years doing the UEFA Cup and Champions League double. And I think this is uh, a season that changes uh, English football and changes the history of Chelsea because uh, you see Mourinho come in on the back of that success. He brings a lot of that Porto side, be it you know Ricardo Carvalho, for example. And you also simultaneously see Drogba have this incredible season for, for Marseille um, where he, uh, after dropping out of the Champions League, fires them to the UEFA Cup final, scores in all but one of, uh, of the ties that they had, put Newcastle out with a brace in the semi-final and was just exceptional. Of course, Drogba would become such a big figure in Chelsea's history, not only under Mourinho, um, that you have to look back on, on this year as being a, a major turning point in the, in the history of Chelsea. And in addition to that, if I may, uh, Rafa Benitez won the UEFA Cup with uh, Valencia and he ended up signing for Liverpool as well. So I think that Rafa Benitez also brought something new, special, uh, some modernity to, to a Premier League club like Liverpool. So yeah, I agree with James. Uh, this is a, a season that changed Premier League landscape as well. Mm. Rafa, who also becomes later a much beloved Chelsea figure, Jules. 
No, but the story could have been very different. There's a there's a new book on Jose Mourinho that came out in France, I think last month, to look at his life, uh, his story before Chelsea, and he could have signed, well, he should have signed for Liverpool. Liverpool were the team that had an agreement with him and the, the agent representing him at the time. There was a conflict of agents, and it turned out that... I think Liverpool took a bit too long and, and the offer then came from Chelsea, Robert Ravic, offering far, far more money than Liverpool could ever have offered Jose Mourinho and then he decided to go to Chelsea. But the whole story could have been very different had Mourinho stuck with Liverpool, who made that first offer, who had the first agreement with him and moved to Anfield and not to Stamford Bridge. Well, meanwhile, back in 2004, on that 26th of May, Moore was with Porto as they took the field at Gelsenkirchen against Monaco. Classic sounds of Mahayi, the Numenuba song, or Dragoste Tinde, which was very much dominating Europe in those days. And Porto taking on Monaco. Two unexpected finalists, two young managers, one very sided final. You're a bit harsh, one-sided because he finished 3-0, but I think up to the first goal by, by Carlos Alberto just before half-time, uh, I, I didn't think it was that one-sided, and, and especially if you think that Monaco lost to the Vic Julie, who, as we said, um, yes. has been How the best How many shots player. did Monaco have in the game? No shots on target, but I don't think Porto are, far, are much more dangerous in, in the first 35 minutes of the game. Although... Where I would agree with you is I just think that the confidence that Porto team had since the game at Old Trafford made them almost invincible. And I, and I just don't think, they, even with Julie on the pitch, I don't think Monaco can win that final. Really? Uh, yeah, really. Oh, it's a big blow to them losing him so early. Uh, and I'm not sure why Deschamps went not with the usual formation and, and, and sort of spirit that he had through the, through the campaign. He went a bit more defensive for that final. Uh, and then obviously losing Julie is a big blow. I still don't think they would have won it because I think Porto were too strong on the night. But losing Julie was a, was a factor. I just, I just don't think Porto were that impressive either, although they won comfortably. Can I put a, a word on Deco? I mean, he was the man of the match that day. And uh, he was probably the best midfielder in Europe for a couple of years, at least. Uh, that season and perhaps the season after uh, playing for Barcelona, uh, because he, he got all the technical skills to give great passes, but also he, he was a fierce competitor and very strong as well, despite uh, not being very tall. And uh, he ran that final, he managed to score a goal in that final. And uh, I'm sure that somebody at Barcelona was watching it because they signed probably the best player from Monaco, Ludovic Juliet that summer, and they signed Deco from Porto as well. So Barcelona was very clever to pick two very good players from that final for them for next season. And another iconic Mourinho image of him moving on to the next thing, um, you know, going to the Porto supporters behind the goal, taking off the medal as though it meant nothing to him, uh, and then just throwing it into the crowd. You know, I think we already knew that he was... Uh, he was in talks with Chelsea at the time uh, where he would say, uh, I am not one of the bottle. I am the special one. Um, and uh, it seemed that winning came so easy to him. You know, again, as we saw uh, when he won the, the treble with, uh, with Inter and all the things that had gone before with Chelsea as well, that uh, these trinkets, these medals, these pieces of silverware, it was almost though he, 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 he didn't feel he needed them um, because he would, he would accumulate so many over the course of... Uh, over the course of his career. But I think that, again, just 
exemplified the bravado of Mourinho, which um, yeah we've seen so from so few managers um, over the over the years in this competition. Contrast that with uh, with Mauricio Sarri gazing in awe <laughs> yeah. at his Europa League bauble. <laughs> Moo, by contrast, looks the, the the most miserable man there at the final whistle. His team have just won three nil. European champions again. Would Abramovich have snapped up Deschamps if Monaco had won this game? And when you look at their careers, kind of run up to present day, has Didier Jules actually proved the more special? It's a good question, James. Obviously, this final is is the the end of the Deschamps curse, if you want, in those Champions League finals that we mentioned before on the show when he lost a few with Juve, he lost the one with Valencia. Uh, as he was retiring as a player and then lost this one as a manager as well. And Mourinho's deal to Chelsea was agreed before the final anyway. There's, there's this story as well that the night before the final uh, in the team hotel with Porto, Mourinho is already thinking about who he will sign for Chelsea. And there's three names. He needs a striker. There's three names then. There's Benny McCarthy, who he knows very well because he's, he's a big player for him at Porto. There's Dimitar Berbatov. And there's a certain Didier Drogba, who, as James rightly mentioned earlier on the show, played against Porto. The game before the Marseille-Porto game is Marseille Partizan. And Mourinho sends one of his scouts to watch Marseille Partizan. And on that night, Drogba scores a hat-trick in the Champions League for Marseille against Partizan, your favourite team, as we all know. And this is the night, apparently, when Mourinho says, OK, this is the guy I need. Wherever I go next, if I go to a big club, this is who I need. And of McCarthy, Berbatov and Drogba, Mourinho chooses Drogba and then will sign Drogba, who doesn't want to leave Marseille, to go to Chelsea with him and the rest is history. A tale of two Didiers. Mm. There you go then. So that is Champions League 2003-2004. Can't wait to get on to the next season in next Thursday's show with all the drama of Istanbul. Uh, in today's edition of the Totally Football Show, very shortly we'll be looking ahead to the weekend's action in Germany. But next up, it's Inter Totally Round 2. Imagine a world, a world just like our own, but importantly, not our own. Is it the alternate dimension, or are we? And does it have podcasts? The Last Post. Hi, I'm Alice Fraser, bringing you daily news from a parallel universe. It's a sweet, sweet dose of satirical news coverage, some of which will sound pretty familiar. He defended him, saying he broke the lockdown rules on a father's instinct. And I just think if Boris had shielded his d- as much as he's shielding Cummings, he might actually be in a position to give parenting tips. And some of it is just pretty weird. Air in space is becoming much clearer, Alice. And it's quite shocking because there is no air in space. It's empty space. So join me every single day alongside great comedians from around the world, including Andy Zaltzman, Nish Kumar, Tiff Stevenson and Will Anderson. Good luck to you. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Welcome back, Daniel and Michael. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. All right. Michael, as you'll recall, you have a one-point lead from the Champions League round as we head into round two, which is all about the World Cup from 1998 to the present day. Excellent. Daniel, you go first. Are you ready for your questions? Yes, as I'll ever be. Good. Question one then for you, Daniel. What do the following venues have in common? The Stade de France, the Seoul World Cup Stadium, the Allianz Arena, Soccer City, Arena de São Paulo, and the Luzhniki Stadium? 
Um, did they host the opening games of the World Cup? They did, Daniel. They did. Question two, then. Who won the Golden Glove Award for Best Goalkeeper at the 2018 World Cup? Uh, Thibaut Courtois. Is correct. Question three. Who was the only English player to score in the penalty shootout against Portugal in 2006? Oh. Um. oh, Owen Hargreaves. Is correct. Question four. When Corentin Tolisso came off the bench in the 2018 final, which record, stretching all the way back to 1982, was continued? Uh, by a Munich player playing in the final. That's correct. They've had at least one representative in every final since 1982. Question five, then. For a perfect score in this round, who was named in the Brazil's starting eleven for the 1998 final in place of Ronaldo before the team sheet was subsequently changed at the last minute? Oh, I cannot remember. Um, who was around? Um, the Mauro Silva? It was Edgemundo. Still, a very credible four out of five. Pretty good, Daniel. Yeah, I, whatever happens now, I'm relaxed that I've not embarrassed myself. Good. <laughs> not yet anyway. All right then, Michael, here comes <laughs> no, your <yes>. World Cup <laughs> 98 to the present day questions. Question one. Argentina were knocked out of the 2006 World Cup in the quarterfinals, but which Argentine-born player won the tournament? 2006, so that would have been um, Camaronese. It's correct. Question two, who scored Brazil's goal in the 7-1 defeat to Germany in 2014? I think it was Oscar. Is correct. Question three, what do Marcel Desailly, Zinedine Zidane and John Heitinger have in common? That seems like an easy one. They've all been sent off in a World Cup final. That's correct. Question four. Which France player missed in the 2006 final penalty shootout? Uh, David Trezeguet. That is correct. Re-establishing your one-point lead. And this to extend it further. Question five. Who scored Senegal's winner against France in the opening game of the 2002 World Cup? Uh, I think that was the wardrobe Papa Bouba Diop. It was indeed. Meaning that, Michael Cox, you have opened up a two-point lead as we head into the final and decisive round, General Knowledge, which awaits us later on. Happy? Yeah, I must say I, I think I did well out of those questions. There was a couple of, I wouldn't have got from Daniel's set. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got the, the luck of the bounce or whatever you want to call it there. All right. Very gracious of you. It's not over yet, though. The general knowledge will decide this year's Intertotally champion later. Wow, Michael Cox there on a nine-question correct answer streak. Stiff opposition from Cox there. Unbelievable. I want Story to win, though. I want Story to win, so I really I want the outsider to win. You know, Cox has been favourite from the beginning, so... I'm hoping that the underdog can somehow come back into in the general knowledge in third round. Two points in it. Is a nine-question kind of uh, streak, is that is that a record that he's going to set in a final? Well, he, he got 10 out of 10 in the semi-finals, so no. Ah, uh, damn. Mm. Okay, I wasn't listening for that. But Sorry. he could take it all the way to counts 14 correct answers in a row 
Uh, but we'll see. He's got two points advantage. What are the odds? I think I'm going to put money on Cox. We'll, we'll talk about all that kind of thing very shortly. Before that, though, a quick word on what awaits us this weekend in the Bundesliga. Mentioned that there have been two games since we last spoke, one of which saw Leipzig moving into third place in the Bundesliga. Only two points behind Dortmund now. Dortmund are in one of the big games on Saturday. Alvaro, I know you've been following the Bundesliga with interest. Dortmund taking on the remarkable Hertha Berlin. Yes, and uh, I really want to to see how uh, Dortmund uh, competes from now on. Now that the season is pretty much uh, finished for them, or the title race as well, but they still have the Champions League spot to to secure. Uh, and I think the Champions League race is going to be fantastic in Germany because Gladbach, Leipzig, Dortmund, they all want to be there. And there are teams pushing from behind, so that's probably the most interesting part of Bundesliga right now. Mm. Four teams, four points between them, but only three places available beyond Bayern in the Champions League. The other uh, team that's vying uh, for a top four spot is, of course, Bayer Leverkusen, who will be hosting Bayern Munich on Saturday in the early game, which is interesting. They are one of the few teams to have actually beaten Flick's side so far this season. Looking forward to that, Jules? Yeah, very much so. Like you said, Bayer Leverkusen beat them in the, the reverse fixture. Uh, Moshe Gladbach as well beat them in the reverse fixture. And guess who Bayern Munich play after Leverkusen the following uh, weekend? It's Moshe Gladbach. So the next two games, if, if they go through without too many problems, obviously Bayern Munich will win the, the, the league. Imagine they lose the, both to Bayer Leverkusen and, and Gladbach, which I guess is possible. Then we could have a, 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 the title race could be back on. I, I don't know if that will happen, but it'd be interesting to see Kai Havertz as well, playing against the Bayern Munich defence and against Manuel Neuer and see if he can continue his quite incredible run of form at the moment. Uh, and, and yeah, I think this one is, is surely the one to watch this weekend. Well, why not watch that and then follow it up with Dortmund against Hertha Berlin, who are alongside Bayern Munich, the form team since the restart in Germany. But can they continue that away at the Signaler Duna Park? Mm. Rafa and I will be uh, handling that one on BT Sport if you uh, fancy a bit of live football this Saturday. Now, we have the denouement of the Intertotally Cup for this year awaiting us. But before we have that, let's get some odds. Lee Price is with Ben Green. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Good and tag listeners and good and tag Lee Price from Paddy Power. Let's look ahead to the Bundesliga action this weekend. Let's kick off, please, with RB Leipzig scoring four or more against very hopeless Paderborn. Well, definitely a better chance of value than the match odds. Red Bull are 1-9 to nine to win this game. They're 6-4 to four to score four more times. Odds on to score at least three. Poor old Paderborn looked dead and buried in 16-1 to one to pull off what would be a huge upset to win this one. It's not going to happen, is it? All right, next up is Dortmund versus Hertha. Give us the overall on this one and Jadon Sancho to score again. So Jadon Sancho is good again. Who knew? And we're celebrating in typical Paddy Power fashion, offering money back as cash on all markets if Sancho scores in this one, which let's face it, he's likely to. He's odds on 10 to 11 to do exactly that. Uh, that applies to pre-match singles, max refund £10, T&Cs apply. As for the match odds, Dortmund are favourites to win at 3 to 10, Hertha are 13 to 2. And finally, the glamour tie, some would say, of this weekend. It's Bayer versus Bayern. Can Leverkusen upset München? Um, in a word, no. And I was going to leave my answer there, but actually, any time Bayern aren't something like one to a million on, it kind of represents value. 
And in this one, against an entertaining and high-flying Leverkusen team, they're just, and I say that, my fingers twitching in the air, two to five to win. What an absolute unbelievable piece of value that is. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Speaking of stopping, time now for the concluding round of the Intertotally Cup. Well then, here we are. The decisive round of this year's quiz. Daniel Story with a creditable 7 out of 10 in the opening two rounds. But Michael Cox... Two points clear with a whopping 9 out of 10 and, of course, a perfect score on World Cups. Now, though, it's time for some general knowledge. And, Daniel, you go first. You need to make this count. Question one, Daniel. Which two Premier League teams have been sponsored by Fly Emirates? Um, Chelsea and... Arsenal? Correct. Question two. Who played for Lazio, Sampdoria and Bologna and was Capocannonieri three times in the 1990s? Sorry, can you give me those clubs again, James? Sure. He played for Lazio, Sampdoria and Bologna and was Capocannonieri, top scorer in Serie A, three times in the 1990s. Signori? Is correct. That's pulled you level. Question three. Which club has won the most women's Super League titles? Uh, Arsenal. Is correct. Question four. From which club did Leeds sign Lucas Radibi? Oh, wow. Uh, Kaiser Chiefs. Correct. And the inspiration, of course, behind that band's name. Question five. Who scored the first hat-trick in Premier League history? Eric Cantona. Is correct. Daniel, that's five out of five on the general knowledge. Michael Cox, you're up next. If you get three out of five, we'll be into a penalty shootout. Of course, anything more than that, and you will be our first intertotally champion. Nice. Looking forward to it. All right, then. Your general knowledge questions, Michael, begin with this. Question one. Which two Premier League teams did Sanderson sponsor in the 1990s? I think it was Southampton and Sheffield Wednesday. You're correct. Question two. Who is the only ever British player to be Serie A Capocannonieri? British player? I can only think... So it's not recent. I'm torn between... No, Greaves wasn't there for very long. You only need one season to be Capo Cananieri. Yeah, but he was. He, yeah, but he didn't. Um, he didn't do very well. I'm going to go for John Charles. Is correct. Question three: Which club has won the most women's Champions League titles? That must be Leon. It is. You're level now with Daniel. Question four. And this for the title. From which club did Leeds sign Tony Yeboah? Yeah, so it was someone in Germany. I'm thinking it was either 
Kaiserslautern or maybe Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, I'm going to go for Eintracht Frankfurt. So the choice was Kaiserslautern or Eintracht Frankfurt. And Michael, Eintracht Frankfurt is right. You are the intertotally champion. gentlemen the winner of the inaugural intertotally cup for 2020 never knowingly under quizzed michael cox wow wow that's stirring stuff the the other question that we had for you was who has scored the most hat tricks in premier league history would you got that i think it's now aguero it is now aguero all right so that would have given you a a two-point lead but it was oh so tight And, and daniel what, what a thrilling finale you gave us and what a great competitor you've been. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could have done an awful lot more. That was, as expected, Michael taking on his semi-final performance into the final. Right. Well, you take your intertotally mug and checkbook at home, of course, Daniel. <laughs> so there's that. And uh, Michael, look forward to uh, seeing you defend this title in a year's time, I'm guessing, or until you know next time football gets shut down and we have to invent new content. Yeah, looking forward to it. It's been a, a fun competition. I like the fact that Ben has clearly pre-recorded a kind of victory thing with my name in it, which means that one day, you know, the one with Daniel will be unearthed as, you know, what could have happened. But yeah, it's been fun. I'm going to ask Ben for that copy just to play <laughs> myself every morning. <laughs> <laughs> Magnificent. Well, you're both winners in my eyes. And uh, look forward to hearing from you both again soon. Many thanks, many congratulations. And Michael Cox, the Intertotally Champion for 2020. Wow, listener, that was emotional. And Michael Cox, the first question of the final wrong, but then after that, just relentless, 14 right in a row. What can you say, James? Um... Chapeau, Jules. Is that what you would? Uh, you, you're taking your French cap off to uh, to Michael. Yeah, he's a machine. He's a machine. I wanted Story to win, but I have to give it to Coxie for an incredible run. He deserves by far the best of all of us, without a doubt, and he deserves his crown. I guess that writing a few books about European football and Premier League help a little bit. So congratulations to ah. him, and uh, yeah, oh, great job, of course. That's that's like your that's like your PLO line. Intellectual doping, right? Yeah. All right, then. Everybody excited for the weekend? That wraps it up for today's show. But, I mean, there's so much to look forward to. Where are you going to be, Alvaro? Uh, I'll be working on Bundesliga this weekend, and I cannot wait for the Leverkusen Bayern. Okay, nice. 2.30 kicks off. Rafa and I will be on the air from 2 p.m. on BT Sport. James and Julian, big plans for this weekend? (sighs) Got a lot of writing to do, James. A lot of writing. What are you you cooking up for uh, the athletics uh, readers, James? Uh, well, there's a, an interview with the Juventus player coming up. Um, I'll, I'll leave it like that. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You'll have to see. All right. Jules, what about you? I'll be watching you and Rafa for the Bundesliga, James, on uh, on Saturday. James, you, you live in everybody's living room right now. Wow, that's a thought. But uh, very kind of you. Thanks, Alvaro. By the way, speaking of BT Sport, if you've been enjoying the Golsha retro shows that Jules and James and Rafa have been doing with me, uh, we'll have, I think, a couple more of those up. This weekend, uh, what are, what are in those? Can you remember? I think some of the games from uh, from I this season that we've been speaking yeah. Yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've wet the appetite. If you want to see Monaco's eleven goal thriller with Deportivo, that's one of them. 
So check local listings for details. And of course, Totally will be back on Sunday evening, rounding up all the weekend's action and continuing our Premier League retro series. We'll be up to 2000, 2001. Do hope you'll join us then, listener. For now, though, from Alvaro, James, Julian, and myself, it's ciao, ciao. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.